Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed During the years leading up to World War II, California led the nation in fanning the flames of racism and immigrant scapegoating against Japanese Americans. These laws were the result of racial animosity and hysteria and not anything to do with the safety and security of this nation. This week, the California Assembly passed a resolution officially apologizing for our state's role in the incarceration and denial of civil liberties of Japanese Americans during World War II. This resolution is necessary because we see what is happening in our country today. Migrant children from Mexico and Central America being held indefinitely. It is important that we look to our past and learn from our mistakes. Today, we're going to dig into the legacy of that incarceration. I'm Sasha Koka, and this is the California Report magazine. This month, many Japanese-American communities are also marking a day of remembrance, the anniversary of the signing of Executive Order 9066 back in 1942. That was the presidential order that led to the forced incarceration of more than 120,000 people of Japanese descent here on the West Coast. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. Japanese Americans were forced into 10 different camps from California to Arkansas. Removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. The government called it relocation. Today, we recognize it as incarceration. One of the camps where a lot of people from L.A., Santa Clara, and San Francisco were sent was Heart Mountain in Wyoming. And today, we've got a special guest on our show, Anna Sale, who recently traveled to Heart Mountain to talk with former incarcerees and their family members for an episode of her podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. It's produced by WNYC, but Anna's based here in California in the Bay Area. And it's so great to have you on our show. I'm such a big fan of Death, Sex, and Money. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you guys tackle a lot of taboo topics on your show, usually really juicy stuff. How did you decide to do an episode about elderly Japanese Americans and incarceration? 
Well, we say our show is about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. And I I spend time in Wyoming, actually, because my husband's a wildlife biologist. And I've heard of these annual pilgrimages to this former incarceration site. And and just the scraps that I'd picked up, I thought, this is a story that's about just that. It's often the children and grandchildren are kind of piecing together the stories. um, And they drip, drip, drip out. So I wanted to hear what it was like when people who did live at this site on Heart Mountain, when they return, what do they talk about? And then what kinds of questions do their children and grandchildren have for them? One of the first former incarcerees you met was Esther Abe. Tell us about her. Esther Abe grew up in Washington State, actually, and she was the first person that I met when we got off the school bus. And I wanted to know why she had come back here. This was her first time back since she was a young girl, and she'd brought with her her two adult children. So it came to life for my daughter. She saw our name in the registrar's books. And it kind of woke her up. I thought, oh, this is true. Were there any flashes of memory that came back, what you did when you were a little girl? You know, there was something happened that I didn't expect. I saw that heart mountain. On the horizon? I saw that, and I kind of choked up. I didn't realize I was going to be that emotional. But no tears, just choking up. Mm -hmm. What do you think that was? I think it's, you know, it's a big part of Japanese history, Japanese, really, really American history. And um, a lot of the schools didn't know it because it wasn't even in the textbook for decades. So all of a sudden for us to be here and talk about it freely and everybody's memories are coming out and they share their stories, I, it, it's big. Of course, most of the people who are still alive today who can remember their time in the camps were kids. My father-in-law was mm-hmm. four when he was mm-hmm. sent to Jerome, Arkansas, and I know he can't remember much, but you did meet some people who are in their 80s, even 90s now, who were a little bit older, like 10, 12. Yeah, I mean, still juveniles, you know, and, and that was that was really striking to me that the people who are able to narrate first-person accounts of what it was like there were kids were youth. Um, uh, but I, I met a lot of people who had kind of sort of said, like, my memories of this place are kid memories. You know, they didn't, they didn't experience the sort of um, what adults might have felt of like, having to step away from businesses from their role in the community. They were they were kids. And, and, and you heard a lot of stories about how fun it was to play in the river that was nearby or exploring the animals and the wildlife that lived um, at near Heart Mountain. Uh, so it was sort of like this interesting to hear these like childlike memories on top of um, the meaning of what it was to be an American citizen and, and sent away. One of the people that you talked to who did share his animal memories was <laughs> Shig Yabu, who is from Southern California. Uh, this sounds kind of idiotic, but uh, as a kid, uh, there was no fear. Shig Yabu was 10 when his family was sent here from their home in San Francisco. You have to remember there's 120,000 people that went to 10 different camps. Everybody has a different story. But as a youngster, we're looking for adventure like a vacation. You kind of look forward to what is going to be. You know, we didn't think about the guard towers. We didn't think about the barbed wires. Uh, we just wanted uh, excitement. And when Shig was in his 70s, he actually wrote a children's book about his time at Heart Mountain. 
Yeah, it's called Hello Maggie, and it's about Maggie, a magpie bird that he adopted as a pet and kept in his family's barrack at the time. And he actually gave a tour of a new replica barrack that's on site there at Heart Mountain. Here's some of the pets I had. Lizard, horned toad, salamander, ant farm in a jar, a sparrow. Shig's been coming back to Heart Mountain every summer for several years now. New this year is a barrack that was restored on the site. I remember my parents sitting on the bed. Why? Because there was no chairs, no table, no shelves, no toilet, no water. Yeah. I remember something else about the description of barracks. Sometimes the barracks would be high, and the cold wind during the dead of winter would go underneath the barrack, and the floors would be real cold. What's your name? Ken, Kitajima. And what block were you in? Nine. Lock nine? Facing a heart mountain, the fence. Yeah. Hey, by the way, Shig, I got you beat by two years. I've been, I was 12 years old when I was incarcerated here. What an old man! (laughs) Anna, what about the younger people, the kids and the grandkids of these people who were incarcerated? What was it like for them to be there and see this place where their, their parents had been incarcerated? It was interesting. It was sort of a different tone when you got them off to the side and asked about what it was like to be there. It was less kind of swapping of memories and and, um, light. It was more trying to piece together the why and the how. Um, Some people were there with their elderly uh, parents, but some people were there um, who've lost their parents and were there to to learn what had happened, more about what had happened um, from what they'd pieced together from family stories. You did meet one woman who actually heard some pretty incredible family stories growing up, and the story of her parents is quite remarkable. Let's hear a clip from that part of the episode. When Shirley Ann Higuchi was growing up, her parents talked about their childhoods at Heart Mountain. It was how they met. But for that incarceration, I wouldn't be here talking to you. Um, When they bumped into each other years later at the University of California, Berkeley, their faces, interestingly enough, looked identical to when they were kids. And that recognition um, turned into um, uh, a love affair and marriage. It's amazing to me that, you know, because of this incarceration, her parents met and fell in love years later. Yeah. And Shirley sort of has to grapple with that um, because she at once recognizes that that is how her parents came together. And also um, talking more with her, it really felt like she was able to feel more anger uh, about the incarceration than her, um, particularly her mother, was ever willing to express um, during her lifetime. She was 11 years old at the time when she got ripped from her home in San Francisco and put in uh, to Heart Mountain. Um, I think one of her coping tools, and this comes up, I think, in terms of um, uh, childhood trauma or traumatic events, is um, to somehow gloss over the experience and sort of recreate it um, in some ways to be a little bit different than it was. So she really never talked about the negative aspects of camp. In some ways, she made it sound like it was almost a fun place to be. It wasn't until Shirley was in college and doing a project for a philosophy class that she started to question what had been left out. She interviewed her mother about Heart Mountain and then another Japanese-American woman who was incarcerated during the war. At that time, I realized that there was another view to the incarceration than my mother's view, hmm. um, because the woman that I interviewed cried most of the time that I was talking to her. 
what was that like? What, what did what do you remember about that conversation? Um, I guess in some ways I was a little surprised, and it was almost a little bit of an alarming feeling, um, mostly because I then began questioning the objectivity and the information that my mother was sharing. And then I think on a second level, it was almost like me being worried that she wasn't able to fully express herself um, around her experience. Your mother. Yeah, my mother's. Um, And I remember I questioned her about that later. I said, well, mom, you know, weren't you angry at all about what happened? And, you know, she pretty much, you know, said, no, it was a fun place to be. It was where I met dad. I said, come on, mom, you know, weren't you a little angry about what happened? And then the conversation escalated to her yelling at me, telling me that I don't know what it was like there. And essentially, the communication I got from her was, you don't have a right to have an opinion about the incarceration because I was there and you were not. Um, It wasn't an easy feeling to be in at that time. She didn't welcome your anger on her behalf. She didn't feel like you were Well, women weren't allowed to be angry back then. You know, I think women in general, and I think being of Japanese background, I mean, I think being angry was considered uh, bad manners. I think the Japanese uh, culture is very complicated. But I think there's sort of something there where you need permission sort of to speak or need permission to talk out on things. So, um, no, she she didn't welcome it. Although I think in reality, in many ways, she was angrier than I was. But she just suppressed it and managed it differently. Why do you say that? Um, because I think that one of the things I remember telling, um, I have I work for a psychological association, and I have a lot of friends that are psychologists. I remember one time, I just said, God, my mom is just so controlling, you know. Like, she would send me clothes, even though I'm working and I am had a family, she would send me clothes. And the psychologist turned to me and said, Shirley, of course your mother's controlling. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, she was ripped from her home and put in a prison camp pre-adolescence and she lost everything and you're wondering why she's controlling? It would be strange if your mother wasn't controlling. And then talking to other uh, people in my generation, we're called the Sansei, third generation, they told me, oh, yeah, my mom was really controlling too. But the thing is, again, remember, I wasn't exposed to other Japanese Americans growing up, so I couldn't really compare notes. That has been resolved since my engagement with Heart Mountain because now I know I'm not alone and essentially what I experienced was normal. Anna, what I love about that interview with Shirley is that you teased out this totally unexpected angle, right? That having controlling parents was part of the intergenerational trauma. Yeah, I actually said to Shirley, I said, I, I love that you come to these pilgrimages and one of the things you talk to other children of incarceries about is like, yeah, how do your parents drive you crazy? <laughs> because it's not, it wasn't something that I intuitively sort of would anticipate hearing. But of course, like the ways in which the people who were incarcerated at Heart Mountain incorporated this into their lives and, and how they lived and then how they raised their children um, affected not just Shirley's family as she found out going to these pilgrimages and talking to other people, but but lots of families. I also want to say, like, the conversation that was happening at this pilgrimage was not just about the past. It was about what does this mean today? I heard from former incarcerees and their children and grandchildren talking about um, the ways in which the current political environment uh, makes them think about this history and makes them think about the uh, obligation and responsibility they have to talk about what happened and to make sure this doesn't happen again. 
Anna Sale is the host of Death, Sex, and Money, and she's been talking to us about some of the California folks she met on a pilgrimage to Heart Mountain, Wyoming, where some 14,000 Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II. You can hear more of Anna's interviews with incarcerees and download the whole episode if you subscribe to Death, Sex, and Money. When you think about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, you probably don't think about big band music or swing dancing. Music was infused early on in the internment incarceration experience as a way to bring some normalcy because at that time, music was a source of of hope. It allowed them to escape That's Franco Imperial. He's the artistic director of San Jose Taiko, which has this interactive show that's going around the state celebrating the big band scene in the camps where Japanese Americans were incarcerated. It's called Swingposium. So as an audience member, you are not just watching, but you are participating. Imagine yourself walking onto a movie set from the 1940s, unfortunately, in an internment camp dance hall. And so you are surrounded by actors, dancers, taiko musicians. The whole show starts with the door swinging open and you've just been transported through time. In the Mood is playing. And, and the band starts and you just start dancing. It's a story of the hardships, um, the blossoming of swing music and dance despite the hardships of being in an incarceration camp and of a love that blossomed between a young man named George and a young woman named Amy. It starts out as uh, them meeting at a a dance for the first time. George doesn't know how to dance and um, as he navigates music and love, he's also navigating being a young, you know, teenager of 18, wondering if he should enlist, if he should go to war. Uh, why should you fight for a country that incarcerates your family and yourself without due process? And another side of uh, wanting to prove yourself as an American. If you were in Heart Mountain in Wyoming, the only swing band, if you wanted to listen to swing music live, was the Georgie Gawa band. They were the only game in town, so they would be bussed out of camp, do a gig, and then bust back into incarceration camps afterwards. They were used for anything from high school dances to community dances to um, what was unbelievable was that they would be used for war bond rallies. This was them proving that were just as American as anybody else in the country, that they were saying they love Duke Ellington and Cole Porter and listen to the same music, dance the same dances, 
loved baseball and playing this music was an expression of them saying, you know, we, we are no different than anyone outside of the barbed wire. For San Jose Tycho, we started in 1973. The group decided very intentionally that it didn't want to be a, a carbon copy of a group from Japan. So our sound was meant to be representative of the Asian soul of America. Tycho, in the early days, when we first performed in Japan in the early 90s, the Taiko establishment in Japan saw us with our from California, smiling, being joyful and effusive, and they labeled us California Sunshine Taiko. So, uh, swing when you think about it in that context, it's not too much of a departure. Taiko is really meant to represent the spirit of the Japanese people in a very fantastical way in, in this particular performance. How do you choreograph it so that you can play a huge taiko drum and be swing dancing at the same time? <laughs> uh, trial and error. <laughs> My personal story was growing up in Texas, uh, the Japanese-American incarceration was not covered in our history books. You wish more people would have known about this history. It was, it's a tragedy in itself that this, this generation of Japanese-Americans, uh, their experience was intentionally, potentially being erased. For all of us in our group who aren't all Japanese-American, um, it still resonates on a very human level, especially when you connect the dots to what's happening today. San Jose Tycho's show, Swingposium, is coming to Torrance in May and Stockton in June. And now we're going to meet a teenager waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court to decide her future. And that's because her future is linked to her mother's future. Her mom has DACA, which is the temporary protection from deportation for hundreds of thousands of immigrants who came to the U.S. as kids. Sometime between now and June, the Supreme Court will rule on whether the Trump administration can end DACA. And that could affect a lot of U.S.-born kids because many DACA recipients have been here for so long that they have kids of their own. In fact, here in California, there are some 70,000 kids whose parents have DACA. Reporter Zadie Stavely is going to take us to the Central Valley now to meet one of those kids. I see you! Guadalupe and her mom are running around a park near Modesto with her two-year-old cousin. Guadalupe is 15 years old and a high school sophomore. She's also a soccer player, but she spends a lot of her free time with her mom. Back at home in their dining room with her grandma's birds chirping in the background, Guadalupe talks about her dreams. 
After high school, I would like to go to CSU Fullerton. And then she has it all planned out. Cal State Fullerton after high school, then medical school in New York. Guadalupe was born with a birth defect that affects her kidneys. Dealing with that all her life has made her want to become a pediatrician. I like helping kids. Um, I don't like to see them sick or anyone crying or their parents feeling scared because something can happen to them. Her mom, Gabriela Garcia, has raised Guadalupe as a single parent, and she could not be more proud of her daughter. She says she also had good grades in high school until she realized what it meant to be undocumented. Because then I didn't think I could go to college, and I kind of like gave up. I felt like I hit a wall and I couldn't go or do anything when I realized I was an immigrant. Guadalupe was born in Redwood City, south of San Francisco, so she's a U.S. citizen. But her mom, Gabriela, was brought to the United States from Mexico when she was three years old. Now she's 33. When Obama announced the DACA policy in 2012, she applied immediately. The program allows her to work as an accountant at a computer company where she has health insurance. Gabriela says that's been critical because her daughter has been hospitalized multiple times and has had three surgeries since she was born. Having health insurance has really helped us a lot because just seeing what the bill should have been without the health insurance, it's crazy. In an effort to defend DACA in the Supreme Court, pediatricians and other child development experts told the justices that ending the program would hurt the physical and mental health of U.S. citizen children. For Guadalupe, anxiety started to grow after Trump was elected. That's when her mom began to think she could be deported and drew up papers to name a legal guardian for Guadalupe. Gabriela says she did that after she heard that immigration authorities were ramping up arrests. It felt like we we weren't anything. We had no way of stopping them. It's just a fear that every immigrant has. Yes, we know we have something, but at the same time... Gabriela stops a moment, and Guadalupe finishes her sentence. It can be taken away. It can be taken away. If DACA ends, Guadalupe is afraid she'll lose her mom. If something were to happen to her, I feel like the air got knocked out of me, or I, I don't know what I would do. Guadalupe tells her mom when she grows up, she will protect her. But they don't know if that's even possible. Under current law, when a U.S. citizen turns 21, they can apply for immigration papers for a parent. But if that parent entered the U.S. illegally, they have to leave the country for 10 years or more. Gabriela wishes her daughter didn't feel responsible for her. I want her to focus on her being a kid or her being a teenager or making sure that she has her life. In the meantime, Guadalupe and her mom are both waiting for the Supreme Court to decide on DACA. Guadalupe is heading to college in three years. Gabriela hugs her daughter close. My child, who will soon go away. Yeah, you're almost done parenting me, Guadalupe says to her mom. Am I? No. Mm -mm. Never. Never done. Gabriela steps back and looks at her daughter. Yeah, it's always been her and I. Right, Tita? We've been there through a lot, right? It's you and I. They lean into each other, holding on. For the California Report, 
I'm Zadie Stavely. That story was produced in collaboration with EdSource, which is a nonprofit journalism organization reporting on education here in California. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. Special thanks to Kate Wilson at the Heart Mountain Foundation. Our show is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho, with help this week from Amanda Font. Seal Muller is our technical producer, and we had additional engineering this week from Katie McMurrin. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor, and Ariella Markowitz is our intern. Our team also includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, presenting Trade-Offs, a new podcast that tries to make sense of our costly and complicated healthcare system. Subscriptions at tradeoffs.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, honoring the recipients of the 2020 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.